Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. We try to basically brand it as like black ops, i.e., the special kind of ops where you get to do like 10x work and build a lot of product out of it. And that actually, uh, in a lot of ways, attracted very entrepreneurial individuals to want to join. So I think a lot of it is like shaping the brand of the program, helping people understand how important it is and the things that they'll learn. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we explore the operational and organizational innovations of Rapid at Scale AI with Zeely, head of Rapid. We cover merging ops and engineering, branding teams to attract top engineers to the critical but maybe unsexy problems. We talk about designing orgs for autonomy and customer empathy, the evolution into multiple products, plus creating internal product incubators and establishing decision-making criteria on investing in new products. Let me introduce you to Z. Z Lee is the GM of Rapid at Scale AI, building the team from scratch. As an early employee, she built up the infrastructure for Scale's supply ops system and scaled up Scale's 3D sensor fusion product. Before Scale, Z worked at Lightspeed China Partners, Facebook, Microsoft, and Airbnb with roles in investment and software engineering. She was a producer of VC Pulse, a podcast spotlighting venture capitalist in China. Z was the youngest ever admit to the Yale MBA program and studied computer science at CMU. Enjoy this conversation with Z Lee. First off, Z, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. Jerry and I have been really looking forward to this conversation for a number of different reasons. One of the special things was you and Jerry got a chance to have a one-on-one conversation for the summit a few weeks ago. I had total FOMO. I was like, I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be included. And so selfishly, I'm just excited to be here and to be in conversation with you both. And so I know we wanted to talk about organizational and operational innovations. And there's a couple ways we're going to dive into this a little bit. But what's interesting is that scale made some really early decisions about engineering's role in how the company operates. And so I think to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit more about the early days of scale and why you decided engineering should run operations? So for context, I joined scale fairly early on. Uh, I think I was like the third or fourth engineer. I was first 10. Uh, at that time, yeah, we just raised like, I think $5 million from Excel. It was our Series A. Basically, the TLDR there for self-driving at least is that we had crews as like an early customer. At that time, we didn't have any ops people at all. And so Alex, our CEO, he would ask people to step in, just kind of like try to go figure out how to solve some of the operational problems we we're facing because we were like a managed marketplace in a lot of ways. A managed marketplace in the sense that uh, customers would send us 
tasks that had to be labeled. And then we have our crowd in the back end uh, labeling it. At the very beginning, it was kind of forced. Um, in some ways, there was just no one to do it. And so engineers stepped in um, and kind of carved out this role called ops engineering, where by combination of how things were set up, if you just had brought in an operator at that time, they probably wouldn't have even been able to solve a lot of the problems because you require people to script uh, to actually like make any actions possible as well. So it was like the earliness of the systems and just by chance that like we just have people who are very entrepreneurial, who are engineers that were willing to kind of tackle the problems from early on. So when you say ops engineering, can you give us a little bit of a definition for what you mean by that? Yeah, ops engineering is more like, so when you look at like an operational problem, traditionally, like if you look at supply chain, et cetera, like there is usually some type of a methodology that was already like written or drawn out for like uh, lean manufacturing, all of that. For this, there's a lot of unknowns. And so what you had to do when you look at problems, you both had to figure out like, okay, what is this problem? For example, I had to, let's say you have to like 30x throughput. Uh, in a quick time period, then the question is both like, what are the resources I have to work with? Are there things I can build to reduce the amount of load on the back end for like human labelers, i.e. like pre-labeling or like simplifying uh, the tasks in some way, etc. So there was like a combination of both solving the pure ops problem and also like engineering your way so that you can like reduce the scope of the problem. So that's why it's like ops plus engineering in a lot of ways. I think that's a, a very interesting angle to look at operation uh, because in a way, the, the goal is not to get things done through operation, is to automate, to make things easier. And inevitably, that requires a lot of engineering work and also the idea of what can be automated, what's doable, what is not, what takes more time, what's the low, low, low hanging fruits. So uh, having people that are familiar and can do the work on the engineering side get fairly involved, it's really uh, helpful. I think that's not applied to uh, to scale, but I think there might be a lot of other opportunities at different companies who are looking at operation just as operation. So I think that's a very interesting perspective. Yeah, and like the thing that we found is when we built the best products, as at least in terms of like, you know, like labeler facing products, it has always been when our engineers were directly on the ground. We have labelers across the world. So we would just like pick a place and, and fly there um, and kind of talk to them directly. When they were on the ground and kind of like actually understanding their hardware restrictions, all of that, that's when we built the best features that actually like empowered all of our labelers. Like in the ops side, it's similar to like being very close to the user, right? Like actually understanding what they're constrained are being there seeing what their needs are has like been tremendous instead of just listening to their complaints because a lot of times like if you ask people what they wanted they would have said they wanted a faster horse they would never came up with like a car uh, and similarly with iphone etc like you should always focus on asking people what their pain points are like whether it be like the labelers uh, in the far end or like the operators being deeper kind of help helped a lot of our engineering as scale understand the pain points very deeply to actually build then like for things that to automate the whole thing. Can you tell us a little bit more about how engineering first got involved in taking over operations? Because I'm thinking like this is not the default for for most organizations and there may be like some misconceptions, some resistance or, or just, yeah, I guess misconceptions about getting involved in that. So can you tell us a little more about like what was that like when engineering first got in operations? Like how'd you convince people to take on this particular responsibility? You could tell like some engineers were unwilling because they're like, you know, like I was hired to code. Like I don't want to like do these like uh, ops heavy work. Initially, it was because just by necessity, there was no one else that could do it. And so people stepped in. But over time, 
we found that there were a lot of problems that were extremely difficult so the, the way i like in it is you have these problems that traditionally like if you just put an operator on like how they solve it it's not going to propel long-term product growth and so when you shape like a special kind of program out of it like at that time we call it like technical product managers uh, or ops engineering we tried to basically brand it as like black ops i.e the special kind of ops where you get to do like 10x work and build a lot of product out of it. And that actually, uh, in a lot of ways, attracted very entrepreneurial individuals to want to join. So I think a lot of it is like shaping the brand of the program, helping people understand how important it is and the things that they'll learn. Because I do think for a lot of people that were the initial TPM slash ops inch, what they learned about ops was like better than they could have learned about like just pure engineering anywhere. And it kind of gave them a special edge too, in terms of like, you know, like the businesses these days are becoming ever more so like ops intersection with like tech versus just pure tech, like pure software. So I think these things that we pitched for the earlier TPM slash Opsinch was really helpful. And I, I liken it like a lot of ways we're trying to brand the program very early on. So the way I liken it was like how Google convinced people that cyber reliability engineering Platform engineering was very sexy from the early days. How Palantir was able to hire a lot of four deploy engineers uh, who are effectively consultants in a lot of ways. And then similarly, like how Google went about branding the APM program. I guess APM program is a little bit of a stretch because product management has always been very coveted. Um, and so the combination is like, how do you brand the program externally, but also like sell it in a way that speaks to the target audience that you want to work on this problem. Can we dig a little bit deeper into how the branding is done for the TPM slash office engineering? Because those are already my roles and a lot of engineers, great engineers can be easily turned off knowing they're going to work on operation. I'm curious how you make that pivot and, and turn around the perception of their role. I think a lot of it is actually for the more entrepreneurial engineers, uh, they actually really liked it. The way we describe the role is you get to work on zero to one projects. So zero to one projects are projects where it's super undefined. You're being thrown into the deep end. No one's going to tell you how to do something because no one knows. And you just kind of have to like figure out how to invent the plane as you fly it. That's like the normal way people describe starting a company is you're flying a plane and it's kind of broken and you have to re-engineer it into a Boeing 747 as you're flying it. In a lot of ways, we pitch them, hey, like you're going to start a company, but you don't have to start it now. You can be a little patient, get a little more experience. And the best way to practice for that experience is to work in like a super ambiguous role where you're... There's like a lot of ambiguity around how to solve for a problem, but you have resources, you have the autonomy to do whatever you want uh, to tackle it. And a lot of ways we like specifically curated the program uh, and the people we hire who wanted that exposure to kind of like unknown unknowns. Such a great illustration there. I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about like the impact on silos between kind of like distinct functions around engineering and operations and talk a little bit more about the impact that's had at scale in, I guess, eliminating silos. Yeah, so traditionally, ops and eng, you know, obviously live in two different silos, kind of protected by a layer of product management, where the product manager, a lot of ways are like gatekeepers to eng resourcing, because engineering resourcing is usually the most scarce resource in the org. And so what you do is you kind of delay innovation in a lot of ways, even though they're really important. By kind of embedding engineers into operations, what you effectively get is then like people who deeply understand and can action on the problem immediately by building uh, dashboarding, internal dashboarding that help alleviate some of the like existing problems. Or uh, in my case, what I did was, hey, let's build like a new system 
that became rapid, that automated a lot of the previous things that I knew was broken, and we can make things better as a whole. So the product insights, the way you can discuss things with operations now is very different because traditionally they'll just say, hey, like engineering doesn't understand us. Like they don't understand our pains. They don't know what we're going through. They're just saying they don't have time. But now if I can talk to them in a way where it feels like I understand them, I understand what their perspective is, I know how to solve the problems that they're trying to solve and I propose a solution, it will get more trust from them that it will work. I think a lot of that is, is that, is that like they know that you know how it works because you've done it before. I have a, a the next question I want to ask you Z is is like some other early org decisions that were maybe right or wrong in, in hindsight. But the the final question related specifically to this particular decision because I think it's 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 so unique and the fact that you you consciously made that choice at the very beginning I think is really is really interesting. If somebody was to pivot into this and roll this out for the first time, what kind of recommendations would you have in in making that tactical transition to merging these roles? Um, I think the most important thing is picking the right initial people and setting up a culture of like high ownership and like picking the right entrepreneurial types to kind of like help set the operating principles for that group so that it can operate in like a very both collaborative, but also very problem solving heavy way to make things happen. It's always better to do it early on versus like later deciding that this is something you want. Because when there's already like organizational structure in place, like it's very hard for them to touch the crux of like operations, unless there's like a burning fire. The earlier you can do that, the better. And just picking the right people to start off of it and giving them a lot of autonomy to shape how like a more fused org looks like will be extremely helpful. Can you talk about the composition of the ops team from early on to where it is now? Because for Rapid, I'm sure it's been a uh, girl a lot and more matured as well. Does that composition change? Is all 100% engineering or now it's, it's a little bit different? Yeah, so the current ops team, the way it works is like once someone has solved or figured out some kind of solution to zero one problem, you would definitely build a more traditional ops team around scalable processes. So today ops is still heavily just like traditional ops and that has happened as we evolve over time, uh, over different verticals that's become more mature. For example, our initial product market fit was all self-driving. It's like 3D labeling. And now there's a large org uh, in ops built around that. I think for Rapid, it's a little bit different because the principle for it, since it's like very like for any single, every single ML engineer out there should be able to have a Scale AI account, should be able to go on to Rapid and get quality data. You actually can't afford to have operations be involved just from a pure OpEx standpoint. And so that's why we were forced to build with a lot of automation. And there's like very little operations on Rapid other than for maintenance. So i.e. we always proactively signal when we have problems in certain areas and then have people look into it versus traditionally it was more like ops is running the show. Uh, so it's like a different uh, modality in terms of how we view ops in a lot of ways. I would say like, Initially, it was kind of, we stumbled upon this like ops inch fusion that was like TBM's ops inch that kind of like relinquished a little bit over time because like engineers, obviously they're like, uh, I don't know if I want to do ops. And then you have like a more traditional ops or kind of emerging. And then we had, we added in rapid, which kind of like works in parallel, you know, like you can, you can think of it like as like an intermittent, like querying calls for ops when necessary to kind of look into certain problems. It's not like that we just figured out how to do this from early on. I think we're very lucky that we kind of stumbled upon like using engineering uh, to do ops was very special and it actually helped uh, scale the company in a lot of ways. So the ops team is now more on the on the maintenance side versus be part of the, the part that have exposure to user experience. 
Yeah, so the nice thing for Rapid is that so the traditional more scale uh, classic type of engagement has always been more white glove. Because of white glove nature of it, you sometimes have a longer gap between customer feedback. The nice mm-hmm. thing about Rapid is now we get that user feedback directly from customers using the portal themselves. You can go on full story or any kind of like video site that captures kind of like the user journey to get that feedback. In a lot of ways, the customer is acting similar to what ops would have done internally for them. But obviously, we've abstracted a lot of that away as like automation. And so we, we do get that feedback loop. And a lot of ways, it's better forcing function because if you, effectively what you're, what you're doing is traditionally this product was internal, right? Ops use it and then we just deliver like some blanket amount of data. Now we made it external through Rapid. That gives you a much better forcing function because if the customers complain, you're definitely going to address it versus like an internal team. So in some ways, that's also a different decision we made that became like a better forcing function to build out a better user experience for you know, like running these type of projects. Yeah, that, that alone is a interesting insight. It's a, I guess, potentially less leveraged leverage. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> that yeah makes exactly. Sense. That, that makes total sense, yeah. Yeah, like the, the kind of decisions you make on who is the customer, like, because if you look at internal tooling, traditionally, just internal tooling isn't great. That's why companies like Retool has, have popped up, right? You're never going to prioritize certain things. You're always going to prioritize the customer because like the firm's responsibility is to make revenue and make profits, right? That, that becomes like a much better alignment in terms of incentives once you like make that kind of tooling uh, external facing and you get customer feedback. Now you can justify why you're investing time into making it a lot better. That's great. It makes me like start jumping up and screaming. It's like if you if you want to improve your internal tooling, one way to improve that is make it customer facing. <laughs> you know, we had a, we did a big overhaul to the dashboard for uh, Gradual's platform, and like the the V one version of it was definitely a little bit more rudimentary. And so you definitely had to be an insider to understand how it all worked. Now it's it's much more customer and partner facing. So de- definitely experience that firsthand. Th- there's so many other I think elements going on at, at scale and at Rapid that are really interesting. What were some of the other early org decisions that were either right or wrong or maybe painful in the short term and better in the long term i think there were some decisions for rapid that i made explicitly i mean obviously rapid is is a little younger like uh, we started it in uh, 2020 which was i made engineers uh, actually become customer support In, in a lot of ways like for rapid we created a plg product that was traditionally not the case for scale which is very enterprise heavy and so i think creating the sense of customer empathy and making sure you uh, are very focused on customer love was very important to me. And when you have like newer engineers, usually like that's not something that's top of mind for them in terms of being like an operating principle. So I actually made it such that we set up intercom and had engineers rotate during their on-calls that they would both do on-call tickets and also answer customer support tickets. And I made them watch full story all the time um, so that they understand like what the friction points are for a customer, how it's frustrating. Also made different people own different things. So like, for example, someone would be owning quality. What that would mean would be like, if anyone, a customer has a really bad experience with quality of tasks that they're getting back, it's that person's fault. And that person goes in and like looks at why this happened and how we can build things to software. So a lot more autonomy than the traditional org where, you know, like the product manager decides like what to build and then the engineers just build it. You're creating this organization where people have a lot of responsibility it actually excites them and like they're living by the operating principles so that when they make decisions uh, over time uh, they're making the right decisions and you can actually put a lot less supervision on what they're doing can you talk more about the operating principles 
So one operating principle for Rapid that's really important is like automation, automation first, because naturally like you can't have like operations step in because of the OPEX. Two, it's just like being very customer first. Uh, that's aligns with what scale cares about. So being customer first and like really caring about like the tiny like customer experience. So the nuance for Rapid, uh, and this is something I, I like to say to people like software traditionally, the experience is the product. How people feel when they use your software is going to be how they decide like if they like your software or not. Rapid thankfully has like a few more dimensions to it, which is the quality of the data, how fast are we turning around the data and then the price points. And then there's also a customer user, like the user experience. And so one principle was like being very customer first is like actually deeply understanding what the customers truly care about. They care about training a model. They care about training a high quality model quickly. And so this is why we picked the dimension of like turnaround as like our core differentiation point. I redefining the turnaround frontier uh, for Rapid. And then I just wanted to make sure anytime anyone made any decisions that they're thinking about these things being customer first comes down to knowing are you making changes that make the quality better and make it easier so the metric here is like time to quality are you reducing the time that customers take to quality and so to me that like that's like one op like the drawing out of one operating principle which is just like time to quality um, and then like optimizing against that function um, I think we also try to live up to the name Rapid. Everything has to be consistent. If like things are loading really slowly, customers are, are going to be like, there's inconsistency between your brand and how your dashboard loads. If things are not turning around really quickly, there's going to be inconsistency. So like there's also another operating around like, you know, being really consistent about the brand that we're trying to build and the product and every experience, every interaction point that customers have uh, with us. So and then the last thing is like, it's kind of more on the product point. It's just like whatever we build, we have to make sure we're, we're enhancing the image of accessibility because Scale traditionally is a fairly premium brand, very sexy AI company, but like Rapid tries to go for the average ML engineer. So how do we build products that kind of beget at that point of like accessibility of like quality data? So it's more like the operating principles uh, in terms of like redefining frontier, figuring out how to expand, you know, like our product offering, being very customer first, uh, automate, 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 simplify. And also there's like a little bit of extension on like what these things mean when it comes down to specifically like rapid. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. How does that operating principle get reflected in evaluation of performance so they have a feedback loop providing to the individuals so that they have not only awareness, but also they're incentivized? At scale, there's like a performance management system that's like two layers. It's both like uh, your impact uh, and then like, like core skills, basically like are you a good engineer? How much impact did you make? But also credos. So it's like your alignment to the company's values. In a lot of ways, like Rapid has like a, a slightly different focuses, but all the same kind of like alignment in terms of like what the company cares about as well. And so they're, they're evaluated that way. There's like two vectors, basically. 
and they're evaluated together in terms of like the kind of ratings they can get. But in, within the team, I think a lot of it is like you tend to see people who are more aligned with these operating principles perform better in general, like have bigger impacts. So uh, implicitly, like the impact vector helps to measure a lot of like the ways you're adhering to the operating principles as well. Those are the role models of the team. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like people that that become the face of Rapid. I mean, we 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 actually have this thing where this this is kind of cool. Uh, now, I don't think a lot of people do that. We had this one new grad inge who is really good at talking to customers. Has like a pretty deep voice. Very very like trust begetting. We kind of help him shape him into like a face of Rapid. He he goes on a lot of customer calls. When we send out outreach emails, it comes from him, etc. So like personalizing this person behind the product that the customers can talk to and feel and like kind of like chat with uh, it is actually really interesting and he he obviously represents a lot of the operating principles that we live by and so that kind of like uh, strengthens that that factor too that's great that's really i love the personalization element i'm also blown away by the ability to extend principles into questions that can drive decisions and actions because i oftentimes find that that is one of the trickiest parts of helping sort of scale the decision making within the organization yeah 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 that's right how do you arrive at those questions to drive the the values or principles within rapid like that to me is like that's the mystery that's the the, the mystery box i don't know how to crack I think there were like for me, I'm just really impatient as a person. And so I, I noticed that I was annoyed at certain behaviors. And then I asked myself why I was annoyed at certain behaviors. If someone's like customer makes a request and someone's like, oh, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, wait, we it should matter. Why doesn't this person care? It's because they're not asking this question. And so that question came out. It's like they're not asking like are we living by our brand value as as like a product, i.e. being rapid? Or like when someone's like complain when a customer complains about like loading time, like in your in your head, you're prioritizing whether it should be prioritized now or should we be working on a different feature, et cetera? What is the impact? Like they're just not taking into account like the whole brand value of like the the perception value of like not addressing this immediately and like fixing it and like letting other customers experience the same thing as well. So I think it's more like instances of how people act made me question why I'm like uh, annoyed or like it, it doesn't feel right to me. And then like how to tie that back to our operating principle and then ask these questions out of it as well. That's great. I, the, pay attention to the things that annoy you, I think is a really powerful thing. Um, I love that. Were there any other decisions that were painful in the short term, but have ended up being better in the long term? I think the the most salient one was the customer support one. Because we continue doing that for quite a long time. And the engineers complain a lot. They're like, when can we stop answering customer tickets? It was pretty painful because it also took up a lot of time. Uh, for one, on-call engineers sometimes they take up like 50% of their time versus like the true on-call was like 25. But I was pretty explicit about uh, making sure that they do it. And then like there, there are also other things like in terms of prioritization, like what do you prioritize? Like do you prioritize like fixing like, like a, a bug versus is like building new features what do you build we made this very explicit decision initially to have a lot of customer involvement early on where like instead of going for the fully automated solution we built like someone that was like semi-automated it was painful in the short term because then customers complain but like you, you're asking them to make a lot of decisions and they would complain they'd be like you know why is this quality not good like the answer to that is you didn't configure correctly um, but you can't tell them that and so you're like okay okay like 
And then kind of moving from that, once you get enough adoption to a more automated solution, I think a lot of people question whether that approach would even work. And it was very painful to kind of like deal with the amount of questions that people had. But it turned out to work because what you did is you built a system that was very extensible. Like we did a good job building the initial system in a way where you can now build layers onto it and actually like have a multiplicative effect once you add like more systems into it. So that, that was also pretty painful to make that explicit decision early on. Also like, rapid engineers do ops today like even though other engineers at scale don't do ops as much anymore rapid engineers do ops sometimes they would be like oh i don't know why i have to do this and i'm like well you can automate it like then you don't have to do it anymore so, so then it became a thing they're like you know, if, if I don't automate it, it's my fault. And that's why I'm doing this. Um, and so it was a it was a good like kind of loop to kind of reinforce the operating principle of automation, because they, they can deeply feel that pain themselves. I, I love that. I've also, I feel like I, I Jerry, I feel like I've heard your voice in the back of my head when we've had conversations like, oh, I'm frustrated doing this thing. And I'm like, well, like, you can automate that or, or figure that out. <laughs> So I think that that can be a really like that, that type of pain can be a really powerful motivator to like w- work yourself out of a job, right? <laughs> yeah, there, there are times Patrick has asked about, well, I don't have time. Well, find time or find someone to help <laughs> to get more time back. Yeah, it's your it's your problem. <laughs> Yeah, it's just so funny, like, especially like when your organization's evolving, like oftentimes, like you are explicitly designing the things that you're doing, like what you're doing is a choice. And if you're frustrated with what you're doing, it's actually probably your fault. Or at least in my case, I found it was my fault, the way like I'm designing myself into this pain. So design yourself out of it. Yeah, that that, that, that like speaks a lot to skills, like creators, like ownership is the job. I think I talked about a little bit like this internal locus of control that you have like this internal sphere that you can control and you should feel very responsible for that uh and then the things you can't control that's just that z i wanted to switch topics a little bit a while ago we're talking uh about some really interesting things about designing an organization for product market fit and some of the the ways that you can sort of adjust that how do you approach designing an organization differently for one product versus multiple products? Because I think with scale and with rapid and just the explosion of, of different products and features that you all have been able to build out, I imagine there's been a big evolution in how you've had to approach it. So I guess bring us into that. How'd you start for one product? How that evolution looked like for multiple products? Initially, I was at scale for like our product market fit, which was primarily AV driven. Um, and then I actually left uh, to do VC in China for a year and then came back. Primarily the reason why I came back, it was, it was at like a, a point where we're figuring out our multi-product strategy. And it would, to me, it would be fascinating to kind of see the company through what that would look like. We have a very fascinating internal structure that we've set up in place. We basically have a venture studio-like um, structure where, you know, like the head of engineer, Alex, they're like the VCs. There's like a back office, which we call product acceleration. And then you have your portfolios who are like the product GMs. Uh, So it's like me, Melissa, Russell, Melissa runs document, Russell runs nucleus. The way to make things work, and I think we look for a lot of inspiration at Amazon. They've done a great job with AWS. They had Candle, they had like Amazon Prime, uh, all of that. They, they created really good products uh, where it's not by acquisition, it's purely by product incubation internally. What you have to do is you just have to come up with like a stable product strategy. I was talking to someone about this yesterday. It's one, deciding whether like, and, and for scale is kind of what to build is not that hard to answer because we're in the ML space and the race is on and we're just trying to all eat up more and more pieces of the ML lifecycle. It's when do you build what? How do you build it in a way that has that propels like compounding advantages for your your like products? I.e., you can either cross sell it better, etc., or you're enriching uh, and making your ecosystem more sticky. That's one measurement, which is which products uh, do you build first? 
the way to think about it early on is just like which products will get adoption, uh, what advantage do you have, etc. And then once you've decided what to build and when, the question is how do you evaluate the products, right? Traditional VCs would just evaluate you against like revenue. Uh, gross margin, your revenue goes, your growth rates. I think at scale, it's both that and also how much are you contributing to the ecosystem? Basically a positive externality that your product creates that you have to evaluate as well. So it's a combination of both. And then and then there is like the question of like, how long do you give each product? And then the question of like, when do you double down, i.e. invest more into the product and when do you uh, cut it off? So these are questions that we've started thinking more about and answering as now we have like, a lot more products but i don't think we have the exact answer yet because like the oldest product is only like two years right and you could argue for some more of the enterprise products that you need three to even start to like realistically evaluate it and so that's kind of like the current state that we're in now so many great questions there i want to go specifically to the moment where the decision was made like this is the multi-product moment where we're going from one to, to many what was that moment like and like how does somebody i think from an engineering leader perspective help come to a determination we're ready for the multi-product moment. I think it was just like, when you're looking at growth, like your core product, there's like a like a framework that people use to think about core products. I think the way to phrase it is like cash cow, when it's like generating a lot of cash flow, but it's, grow, it's slow, slowing down in growth. When your core product is slowing down in growth a lot, or you're projecting that in the next years, that it will slow down growth, you kind of know that there's like an ex- existential crisis of like, how do I expand either what that core offering is offering, or do I build new products? And usually like you're you think of it like one or two years before you hit that point where it's like slowing down in growth and you try really hard to figure out what do you build next but then the second point to that is also like as a company the ambition obviously expands over time of like what you want to be where you want to sit in the ML life cycle and as you're expanding over time you're obviously thinking about what do i need to build to get there um so it's like both factors kind of play a role in building out like the next new product but the nice thing is like we, we did a good job, I think, in late 2020 in terms of like building out processes and like approvals, uh, like steps in place to facilitate it. And, and that was really helpful, I think, in terms of like having like a PR FAQ culture like Amazon uh, going through like presentations, etc. That has enabled a much smoother process in terms of like people building out new products. Can you talk about how designing the right org structure can lead to innovation within a company? Yeah, so the the nice thing is that like the GM structure is that you own both product and inch. In some cases, pieces of like sales and ops as well, depending on how you want to collaborate with those stakeholders. By having a startup within a startup-like structure, you get a lot more autonomy over your PL, you get a lot more control over your success and failure. And so in a lot of ways, you now can be like, oh, that product failed because this person didn't do this for me. You have all your resources, you have you're in control. I think there's a lot less potential to make excuses and a lot more of a feeling that your fate is in your hands. And that has, I think, with the right entrepreneurial type of like GMs propels for a lot more that you can do basically with those resources as well. Do you see it as an industry trend 
to design architecture like that. Recently, I've seen a, a couple of well-known companies starting to adopting that. I think I would argue compared to China, the U.S. is actually not that good at building new products. Because if you look at the larger tech companies, like a lot of their products are acquired, which means there is something to be said about having a lot of bureaucracy and how it slows down product innovation, but also like maybe the organizational structure of like separating inch design product and then you have like sales, blah, blah, blah. Like for one, if you don't have control over your sales at a company like Google and your product is not huge, why would sales give you any resources to help you sell? So like the incentives are not structurally there to help you like sell things. And so I do think like, and then versus in China, like you start off with a team, small team, you hire in people like basically facilitate you like a startup. Um, you can hire in people, hire in sales, all that. Uh, given the dichotomy there, I do think, I think people are figuring out that this is like a big trend uh, that's worth investing into and kind of like, how do you build new products? Probably building it separately in an independent thread where they have a lot of autonomy is just a lot more helpful uh, in terms of accelerating the product versus like getting them caught up in like the processes in, uh, in place. So let's say somebody wants to incubate an idea. Would you say then the structure would be like, kind of a point like a, a GM of like this particular thing and then bring in resources is that kind of the model is that that w- what you would say recommend for somebody to spin up kind of like a venture studio style incubation yeah so first you have to have a product thesis on like what do you invest in what do you not uh, and then build out like a product process probably start off by setting up like a back office like product acceleration like function and then what you can do is once you have those processes figure out who are like the most entrepreneurial people in your org if there are things they want to build first i think you want to start off not going too aggressive where you make it like anyone can do anything like you want to just figure out like if there are ideas you want to build who is the best for it over time you probably do want uh, some kind of consolidation. Like you got to figure out like there's probably some kind of consolidation on the macro level like because AWS has a lot of products and like there's like one person who runs AWS, right? Versus like the products live separately. You have to understand which one is a separate product versus like a feature within the product and then kind of a branch from there. But once you have that process and like the, the structure and process in place, then yes, you can like have someone like pitch a PR FAQ, see where they are in the market, discuss as like, there's probably some kind of committee that you can have in terms of like what to invest and what not to, uh, and then come up with like principles around when do you invest. Investing is like unlocking headcount, right? They, they have to go and hire. Can you tell us a little bit more about like how you formulate when you choose to invest and unlock head, more headcount or, or when you cut off a project and how do you formulate those decision principles? Yeah, I think so. We're still in the middle of like making those more solidified I think in general the way to think about it is depending on the nature of the business i.e are you measuring it purely by revenue and gross margins growth potential uh, where do you see the long-term fold is it more of like a spare fishing like hunt the large whales type of idea or is this supposed to be a smooth growth and then the next is like for your like differentiation defensibility points like are you a network economy etc like how much is this product contributing to your defensibility as a company, to your ability to also produce profitability? And then there's also like spectrum of like predictable growth. Is this product contributing to that as well? So there's probably like a few things you care about as a company. And then you need to figure out how to formulate like a math equation around how do you attribute each product to those things on top of revenue. Uh, and then use that as like a metric to like stack rank and then figure out what is the threshold at which you like, it's not productive anymore to invest anymore headcount. And maybe you don't spend it down. There's like three scenarios, right? You like double down, you invest a lot more, you hold it constant or you can start spending it down. And so 
the the decision criteria for each one of them um, has to be somewhat separate as well. A lot of this stuff, like in terms of decision making, has been has created so much clarity, and it's been really exciting. We've prepared a couple of rapid fi- rapid fire questions for you, I guess in uh, you know in honor of of rapid. Rapid, <laughs> let's go. Rapid fire <laughs> questions with rapid. So the first question: What are you reading or listening to right now? Yeah, so I am reading Skunk Works. It's a book about Lockheed Martin and kind of their journey and building the Nighthawks, basically during the Cold War era in terms of like between the U.S. and the Soviet. And then like, yeah, like the innovation that kind of went behind like building these planes and how impossible it felt like in the very early days to build these planes and how they did it. Extremely phenomenal. One of the very early organizations that exemplify kind of like the Silicon Valley beliefs of like doing the impossible. Very good book. I would highly recommend it. That's really great. I've, I've only ever like at a surface level explored that uh, through the book Organizing Genius by Warren Bennis. And it kind of just like tries to distill some of the, the principles there. But uh, this sounds like a really good deep dive into that process. Next question. What tool or methodology has had a really big impact on you? Um, I think it's Jeff Bezos's like uh, no regret principle. When do you know to give up on something and when do you still like continue to work hard on it? It's like the outcomes that you're trying to drive and whether you'll feel regretful if like something happened that and you didn't do it. What is a trend that you're seeing or following that is interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? This is interesting. I think shopping will change basically tremendously in the States uh, over the next like five to 10 years. I think it already hit China, like live stream shopping is a huge thing in China. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to like reviews are no longer trustworthy. When you look at like an Amazon review today, even if it's like 4.5 star, you're like, is this even good? Like, how do I like figure out what things are good? I think that question is still to be told, like to be answered in the States, whether it comes in the form of live stream shopping, it could because of TikTok's prevalence in the States. I think TikTok is in the best position to do it, or it could be like a new form of shopping that pops up. I love your prediction from 2019, where you're like, if, if you want to increase live streaming <laughs> e-commerce, recruit and train new hosts instead of leveraging existing influencers. I'm like, man, that'd be so cool. I mean, Pop Shop Live is doing pretty well. One Nod is doing pretty well. So some some hot startups there as well in this space. Waiting for, for our friends there to reach out and train us on how to be a, a more effective e-commerce host. That would be a dream. Yes. Yes. You guys can start selling stuff as part of your podcast as well. <laughs> <laughs> Only things that are meaningful for engineering leaders. <laughs> final final question for our rapid fire with rapid question segment. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's really resonating with you? I think more of a mantra. I think there's probably plenty of quotes around it. It's like doing something larger than yourself so that it's like for something that's worth living for. A powerful way to, to close us off. Z, thank you so much for an incredible conversation. We really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you guys so much. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation. To set up Rapid for long-term growth and success, they needed to figure out a way to automate as much as possible. Combining engineering and operations was a key early strategic choice. Since this was critical to the business, they branded this as a quote-unquote special black ops engineering team where you get to do 10x work and build tons of product. This attracted more of the entrepreneurial type engineers. Shaping the team's brand was a critical move to attract talented engineers to the team. So some of the branding they used, you get to work on zero to one projects where they're undefined and you need to figure it out as you go. They pitched it as practice for building a company for engineers that have that future career ambition. And they catered the program for folks who want exposure to unknown unknowns. And if this is a model that you want to try, there were two keys to implementation. 
The earlier you can introduce this model, the better, so you can avoid org structure and process overhead. And the key is to have the right people on the team, and those were the entrepreneurial type engineers. A few important structural decisions they made at Rapid. Engineers were expected to do customer support during their on-call rotations so that they understood the friction points and frustrations of the customer. Then, engineers had the autonomy and the responsibility to build solutions to those problems. Rapid spent a lot of time defining and putting into action their operating principles. To define your own operating principles, pay attention to individual or team behaviors that annoy you. Ask why you're annoyed by those behaviors or why they don't feel right. Then try to tie those back to an operating principle or value that you care about. Here's how scale approaches building new products. First, establish a GM or new product owner. Create separate or independent spaces for them to build. Give the team autonomy and then help them avoid getting caught up in the established processes. From there, assess things like revenue, gross margin, growth potential, how the product is contributing to your defensibility or your ability to produce profitability. And establish success criteria or your decision threshold around the three potential scenarios to double down and invest more, to keep your current investment, or wind the project down. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.